So the Buddha was enlightened around the time that he was 30, maybe a little more, and he lived until he was 80, and he pretty much taught straight through. He didn't worry too much about retirement, apparently. And as most of you know, he wandered around the Indian subcontinent, and he taught all kinds of people all kinds of people who came to see him. And if you read the suttas and the stories about the life of the Buddha, you hear about some of them. You hear about Mogiana, who was one of his um, chief disciples who had great concentration, could go into extremely interesting and exalted absorptive states. And then Sariputta, who wasn't so great at concentrating, but he had lots of wisdom and lots of insight. And then, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, um, you have a wonderful story about Chunda, who um, didn't have so much in terms of intelligence, but he was really devoted. And so he, in his own way, um, found a path to enlightenment. And and then there was Angulimala, who was a mass murderer and um, was practically on the verge of murdering the Buddha. And then um, the Buddha spoke to him and everything turned and his life changed and he too became fully enlightened. Um, and so it's really wonderful to read all of these stories. It gives me a great deal of hope, actually, um, because I figure if there's if there was a broad spectrum then there's a broad spectrum now all of us with our different abilities and our different ways of practice can find something in the teachings of the Buddha and you know and and then in addition to all of, of those people there were you know all of the monks and nuns who followed him and who um, were in that first very large community of ordained people and as we read the teachings of the Buddha and read the stories, you hear in the stories how he adjusts the teachings for those whom he's addressing, you know, and there's a, a wonderful story in which he uses images of acrobats and for people who live in towns where the circus and, and fairs would go through and there's image from, images from agriculture and um, images of parents and children and weather and you know all different ways of phrasing the teachings so that it can be heard by the people who are listening and I think it's really important to understand that because sometimes this notion of practice and the teachings and the dharma becomes kind of monolithic and <coughs> it can it can feel a bit as though there's only one way to do it. You know that that, that um, you have to do this kind of practice or that kind of practice or follow this teacher or those teachers. And again, if you if you read the suttas and and study them carefully, it's very very clear that the Buddha taught many 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 different ways of practice. And it's, possi- it's important, I think, to remember 
that he emerged from the Hindu culture. And one of the things that's true about the Hindu culture, even today, is that there are a multitude of forms and practices, many, many, many different forms. So he was very comfortable with that idea that there were many forms of practice. And if you go today to India and visit some of the Buddhist shrines, um, there are lots of Hindu pilgrims who come to Buddhist shrines. And if you ask them and say, you know, how come you're here? You know, you're not, you're not a Buddhist, are you? And they'll say, no, we're not a Buddhist. But they understand that it's a holy place. And so it doesn't matter to them whether it's a Buddhist shrine or any other kind of shrine. They're happy to come there and pay their respects. <coughs> we'll hope my throat makes it through tonight. Mm. So when you come to a center like this one, you know, it's, it's possible, and I think I, I hear it once in a while, that people sometimes get a little confused. For example, one of the things we hear is, well, what about this bowing business? You know, some people at the end of a set do this, and some people don't do anything, and some people come into the hall and bow, and some people don't do anything. And so it's, it's clear just in that simple physical action of how you walk in here and sit down that different people have different ways of entering a place of practice. And, of course, if you come to any of the classes or the groups and get to talking to people, you know, you'll hear there's, there's just as much jargon and gear, actually, in Buddhist practice as there is in anything, you know, which is afu is the best, you know, You'll watch me, I'll go around and find where's the, the buckwheat hull zafus, I like those. And other people don't want to sit on the buckwheat hull zafus and they go back and they get a bench or they sit in a chair or you have three cushions or two cushions or one and a half cushions and which kind of shawl. And, and do you do jhana practice or do you do metta practice or do you, you know, study the suttas or what? So there's just lots and lots of different words and... Um, and it does have jargon. So what are we supposed to do? <coughs> and it gets compounded if you do retreat practice because then if you go to a retreat, then there's other teachers who teach other ways. And, and then sometimes you hear stories about people, you know, you run into, for example, once in a while I'll run into somebody <coughs> who will say something like, I meditate every day for at least two hours, at which point I'm always, you know, I want to bow and kiss their feet and <laughs> invite them to come and be the teacher at Vipassana Santa Cruz because that's a pretty amazing kind of practice. Or, um, or you'll run into someone who is dedicating maybe a year of their life to practice. And they're sitting many, many long retreats or they're about to go off um, some of you know our friend Richard Shankman who went off and spent a year at the Forest Refuge practicing. People do that fairly regularly, actually. Or you'll encounter people who have decided that it's time to go to Thailand or uh, Burma and ordain as a monk or a nun um, because that's how they're wanting to deepen their practice. And so then the question comes up in the mind, well, what if I can't do those things? You know, what if that's not my style? 
or my life circumstances won't allow it. I can't. I have children. I might have health issues. I have money issues. It won't allow me to do that kind of practice. So it's really important to consider that not only did the Buddha teach meditation as a practice, but he taught other things as well. He taught, for example, generosity is one of the most basic practices in the Buddhist world. Just the simple practice of doing something generous every day. That's, that's not hard. Any person sitting here, probably all of you do this, you may not even think about it too much, but we do it, whether it's generosity of time or generosity of sharing the dharma or whether it's generosity of resources. There's lots of different ways to be generous. And when you um, bring some attention to it, you can really make it very clearly part of your practice life. Or we live our lives as wisely as possible. We live according to the five precepts about not harming, about not taking that which is not given, not harming with our sexuality, not harming with our speech, or not intoxicating body or mind. And some people take those five precepts as a regular thing, as part of their daily practice. And, and many of us live that way, even if you're not taking those precepts. So that's another place where you can actually bring some attention to what it is that you're already doing. And then, of course, there is the practice of meditation, of sitting and bringing our attention to breath and body and mind and heart, or doing some of the different medita- meditative practices, doing the <coughs> practice of loving kindness, doing the practice of compassion. And then, of course, there's also practices of reflection. That's always fun to remind people in the meditative community that there are practices where you're welcome to think. You can take a passage from the suttas, read it, study it, and then reflect on it for a period of time and really think about what does this speak to me? What does it mean to me in my everyday life? Mm. And there are practices within the meditation world. As I said, there's metta and there's compassion. There's practice. There's the practice of very broad, wide-angle um, mindfulness practice where you're simply aware of what is. And then there are other practices where you focus the mind very, very narrowly on one thing and really work at develop, developing concentration. And I was amused today, actually, I was browsing around through an issue of um, Buddha Dharma magazine, and I found a comment from someone who said, I don't know what to do anymore when I sit on the cushion. I just sit there and I'm stupefied. I just have the foggiest notion I'm just there for 20 minutes, and that's my practice. Thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe that's okay for a certain point in the practice. Hmm. So, recently, I found um, a list of the five kinds of enlightened knowledge. I love lists. I thought, oh, this is interesting. So what are the five kinds of enlightened knowledge? The knowledge of reality, the knowledge of perfect reflection, I'm not sure what that is, but sounds good, doesn't it? 
the knowledge of equanimity, the knowledge of subtle discrimination, and the knowledge, and this is the one I really loved, the knowledge of what works. Of what works. Isn't that great? So, you know, the knowledge of reality, being able to see what is so, (coughs) to really reflect on it in a way that's wise and helpful, to have balance, equanimity, and to be able to discriminate very subtly, that kind of very subtle perception that begins to arise when we train the mind, and the knowledge of what works. It's so, that last piece is so practical. It's so practical. And it always, it reminds me that one of my teachers always asks that of me when I talk with him about my practice. And I'll be describing something new, you know, I've been experimenting with this or that. And his question is always, does it work? Is it helpful? I think the fact is I don't tell him things that turn out not to be helpful. But when I say yes, he says, well then, keep doing it. Great, you know, it's marvelous. So that's really the bottom line here, is that each one of us find a practice that works for you, which might be different from the practice that works for me. And um, and that we that we learn from that practice and 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 it it adds to the opening of the heart and the mind. And any practice, any practice can do this. And so it's very helpful to look at at whatever practice it is that you're doing these days and consider what's working, what's working. Now we're going to do a hearing practice. <laughs> and sometimes I think it's useful to take a look at things that we're not necessarily even thinking about as practice. You know? Um, so, for example, um, recently I, have, I noticed that often in the morning... I take my dogs out for a walk very early and they need to go out and I've sort of thought, oh, I just do this. But over the years, I've sort of developed the practice of doing a couple of recitations that I've learned from the Tibetan world while I'm walking the dogs. And I really love it. It's the more clear morning air and the trees and the dogs are doing their thing and it's quiet and I live, I'm lucky enough to live in the forest. And I suddenly, as I'd been thinking about what works, I thought, oh, this is a practice. What happens if I begin to hold it as a practice instead of a dog walk in which I happen to do these nice recitations? You know, but I really incorporate it as this is something that I do every day. And so each one of you, you may have a walk that you do every day. And a walk in nature, you can do as a mindfulness walk and bring attention to your body. You can do it as a loving-kindness walk and extend loving-kindness to the beings that you meet on your walk. You can do anything you want to. And then what you might have just thought of is, oh, the walk from here to there or the walk to get a little fresh air becomes part of your practice. And we're really invited to notice what happens when you do these practices. What happens when you bow? Does it work? 
if it just makes you annoyed and you hate bowing, I don't know that that's a good idea. But if it really helps you and you go, oh, this feels really good to put my body in this position or to, to make this gesture of offering, then maybe that's a practice to do. What happens when you do metta, when you do loving-kindness practice? What happens when you work with concentration and focusing on the breath or when you offer a breath or, uh, I mean, when you offer a breath, when you offer a gift or some other um, kind of generosity? And we really begin to look at every aspect of our lives, looking at the places where we're attached. Where am I attached? You know, or, or is my heart open? Or is it contracted? Or do I want something to come out a certain way? All of these are ways to begin to notice, is our practice working or not? One of the images that comes in all of the many images of the Buddha and his followers since then is that practice is like a hen tending her eggs. And so we have our practice. The practice is the egg. And you're tending it. You're sitting on it every day, sometimes quite literally, sometimes not. And, and bringing the warmth and the energy that it needs in order for something to open up. And that you can't, in a way, let up. You know, You have to kind of keep doing it, or the eggs will get cold. My friend Donald Rothberg, whom some of you know and love, who teaches here, has a great list of many, many different things that you can do as practice. And um, some of it's sitting. It might be the, the, one of the practices that I often recommend to people is that you do the tush on the kush every day for a year. And that doesn't mean long sittings every day. It just means that every day you put in at least a few minutes of meditation. It might just be a few. It might just be three breaths. But you've at least put your body in the position. That's a very interesting practice. And because of its flexibility, you can do two minutes or you can do 30 or 45. Um, it's quite doable. Or maybe some of, for some of you, your practice is you come here. I will come to this group every week. Or I will do my best to be honest. Or I will give something away every day. Or you can join the Dalai Lama who says, my simple practice is kindness. And um, it's one of those ones that's simple but not so easy, I think. I have a friend who, during meetings that she doesn't want to go to, she works in a company that she's not entirely happy with, sits down and writes out metta practice. It looks like she's taking notes at the meeting. (laughs) She's writing out metta phrases for different people. Or Donald, again, takes a hot bath on a regular basis. Or some of you may go to yoga class as part of your practice. Or three breaths before you answer the telephone. Or turning the telephone off for a couple of hours every week. That's a pretty delicious practice, actually. Um, The walk in nature, which we've already (coughs) mentioned, or having um, a time when you meet with someone who might be some kind of a Dharma friend or a Dharma buddy to talk about your practice, or grace or prayers before meals or eating slowly. Lots and lots of different things. And what you begin to see, even as you listen to this list, is that gradually, gradually, practice begins to weave its way through your whole life so that in the end, everything becomes practice. Everything can become practice. 
It's just so important to find what works for you and to really consider what works for me in my life as my practice and start there. Don't start with what looks like it's going to be wonderful. You know, so many people at the end of retreat go home and think, okay, up at 5.30, 45 minutes, I'm going to do it. And you know how those results go, and pretty soon you don't have a practice. But if you have the, you know, something that's that you know is likely to work for you, then you can build on that and and let it, let the practice lead you. The practice will change your life. Sometimes people ask me that, you know, what will happen? Will this do anything to me? And and sometimes, regrettably, the answer is yes. You know, your, your life will change and um, if you do this practice. All you need to do in the beginning is find something that you know you can do and to begin. <coughs> so I thought I would end, and then I'll take some questions, um, with a poem from Kabir, who speaks to how close to us our practice can be. He says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues, nor in cathedrals, not in masses, nor kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me what is God? He is the breath inside the breath. So perhaps some questions or comments. <coughs> about your practice, about anything I've said. all found what works? What works? Tell me something that works. Well, the simple thing, like you said, when I first started, the very first thing I did was I turned off the car radio. So when I was in the car, I could really be focusing on <coughs> driving and being present in that moment. And just it was so simple. And mm-hmm. the next thing I said, okay, this is good. So I stopped getting angry at the road drivers. And so I started driving in the slow lane. And I stopped being oh, angry. Oh, cool. Great. Thank you for that. Driving is a wonderful practice. And it's good to, I didn't bring that in, so thank you. Yeah. Not getting angry. Is it working? Oh, it's changed my life. I used to cuss and... <laughs> I was just terrible and, and uh-huh. you know it's like I don't use that language anymore it's just been so great and I don't get upset about anything Do you know they, they can be crazy there's a lot of idiots on the road and I just let them be idiots and I you know I just I keep to myself now your husband's happy. here so you know we can check to see if this is really true it's true it's true <laughs> <laughs> So, like you say, it does change your life, and it uh-huh. can just be one little thing like yeah. that that starts yeah. out. Yeah. There was another hand over here. Was there not? Yes, please. 
Uh, when you're talking about infusing your everyday tasks and acts with uh, practice, it reminds me of something you read up a few years ago. I said, uh, take everything on the path as the path. Uh-huh. Yes. And that really resonates with me a lot. Yes. Everything on the path as the path. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned, I forget what the context was, but you were talking about being mindful of something. I was wondering if you could just explain more what you mean by mindful. What I mean by mindful? Good question. Hmm. So, mindfulness is knowing that something is happening and knowing that you know it. So, for example, you can, it was a great example, you can drive and not really be paying much attention to the fact that you're driving, right? You're not really being mindful of your driving, you're not fully there. And so mindfulness is a practice of being fully there, fully there with the breath or the body or the states of the mind and the heart. And it it can be fully there, way up close, very, very focused, watching some teeny, teeny sensation in your body or a sound or some something that's going on in your heart. Or it can be a very wide angle because sometimes we're aware of a lot going on at once and it's impossible to, the brain just won't do it. And so then you may have a very wide angle thing of, of you know, there's lots of sounds and movement and activity. Um, but you're, you're very, um, as I, I think the important part is knowing that you know that little place where it turns in on itself. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah? There are four areas of mindfulness. So the body, the feeling tone of things, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of them, the mind and the heart, and then the insights that arise when we're mindful. So the insights about suffering and the things that block mindfulness and the things that support it. Um, So those are the areas that you can pay attention to. Yeah. I think one of my most useful practices is talking to strangers. Mm. Uh, basically, I mean, like when I get on the shuttle bus, saying hello to the driver instead of just you know pretending it's an automaton driving uh-huh. at Trader Joe's. You know, when the checker asks me how I'm doing, saying I'm fine. How are you doing? I mean, it's like. They're so amazed that you're actually treating them like a human, human being. being. And just, you know, when, you know, just walking on the sidewalk, saying hello or smiling at somebody instead of just going, you know, acknowledging, uh-huh. just acknowledging. Uh-huh. And it makes such a difference in how I feel and the reflected back at uh-huh. me. Uh, you know, you get that feeling of, okay, I've made this person moment just a little bit more pleasant, so their next moment with somebody else is going to be a little bit more pleasant. Please, in the back. I try to hear everything someone says, so it's a song with rhythm and, uh, and balance. Uh-huh. I imagine that does very good things for the person you're listening to. There was another hand, please. I found that recently during the time of illness and fear, 
walking in nature and reciting a short poem by Tukmatma was very helpful. I used it during my meditation, but I also used it as a walk. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thich has a lot of those little poems, the little gattas that are for m- mindfulness in the moment. So that's, that's a good recommendation for other people, too. Yeah. Please. This is also Thich idea to have an agreement with your stairway um, that every time you go up and down the stairs to walk mindfully, uh-huh. be aware of every step, and that's really helped me, especially when I realize when I get to the top, if I didn't do it, I'd go back down and <laughs> start over. So then the next time I'm really <laughs> That's a good agreement. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, maybe that's enough. <clears throat> Let me make a few announcements and we'll have some. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.